Welcome to IMTV Radio, bringing you the latest analysis from Socialist Appeal, the British section of the international Marxist tendency. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud or iTunes, or visit www.socialist.net. Hi everyone, um, welcome to this talk on the suffragettes. Um, we're having this discussion today, um, partly because it is the centenary anniversary of women gaining the right to vote, and November in fact marks the first month that women, or the first time that women were able to take part in a parliamentary vote for themselves for the very first time. Um, but there's other reasons why we're looking at the suffragettes, um, namely because it's a movement that um, fought quite ferociously and there are lessons that we can learn from how they succeeded, but also lessons where perhaps mistakes were made. Um, and I think it's important that we do this, partly because this, uh, the suffragettes have been sanitised um, by the British state, to the point that Theresa May felt comfortable unveiling a statue of Emmeline Pankhurst in Parliament Square. They've kind of taken away a lot of the violence and militancy that took place um, throughout the struggle for the women's vote. But also, um, Marxism isn't just a study of theory, it's also a study of the history of the working class. Like I said, looking at the tactics, um, looking at the ways in which reforms and um, other advancements for the working class have been won in the past. Um, and we should study those and learn from them so that we can inform our future struggles against the capitalist state. So, in order to understand the vote for the, suffragette, the, the suffragettes and the suffragists went forward for, I think we need to look at the material conditions. Why is it that it happened um, at this point in history? Um, and to understand that, we're going to go back into the 1800s, to 1866, which is when um, the sort of first Reform Act was passed. Um, this was the Household Franchise Bill, which broadened out the vote um, for male voters, and it essentially doubled the number of men who were able to vote in Britain at this time, um, from about 1 million to 2 million people. So that was about a ninth of the population that had the ability to vote at this time. And this had two galvanising impacts um, on the women's movement. The first was that when this bill was released for the first time, um, the wording was quite strange. It used the word men. And at this time, it was common practice to write um, male person or female person in the bills to, so that people understood who um, they were being referred to. And so many um, women who were kind of already politically active, especially in Manchester, saw that this might have been a slip, um, that they might be able to have the, the potential to go to the um, register to vote. And incidentally, in Manchester, which um, is where the suffragette movement really uh, took hold with the Pankhurst, which we'll talk about later, um, out of the women that were kind of thinking they were eligible to vote, so bear in mind that is propertied women over the age of 30 who the franchise bill would have affected, 93% uh, of them in Manchester attempted to go and register to vote, which shows the kind of appetite and awareness that the male suffrage uh, development had had on the women's movement. People were starting to uh, question why it was that women didn't have the vote and starting to begin to think about action around that. Um, the second kind of um, impact that the male suffrage um, increase had on the movement was that a petition was launched in the same year uh, in 1866. Um, this was kind of uh, led by these bourgeois middle class women who had, had seen uh, their own husbands and others around them have the vote broadened out for them and they collected a petition which to begin with gathered about 1,500 signatures but importantly this was taken to parliament and debated um, on women's suffrage seriously for the first time really gaining 73 votes um, by the politicians. Now obviously that's by no means anywhere near um, a majority, but it does show an indication that there were politicians, particularly liberal politicians at the time, who were prepared to talk about this in Parliament. Of course, that leaves a huge majority of par parliamentarians who didn't agree with women's suffrage, um, and I think it's important we look at the arguments as to why that is. So firstly, um, there was the argument that um, women were hysterical, they were very emotional, um, they weren't able to control themselves, and therefore they weren't able to take part in a vote seriously. Um, 
The second reason is that um, women were less educated, and that is, of course, a consequence of the oppression that women faced by the capitalist state itself anyway. Um, but this led them to think, well, women won't understand the arguments that are put forward in Parliament, therefore we can't trust them to have that vote. And finally, there was this conservative attitude that women had men around them and they could represent them. It wasn't that women's voices were underrepresented because they had husbands, they had brothers, they had fathers. Um, and through discussion with those men, women's voices would be represented. So there was this very um, conservative attitude that existed in society and in the way in which women were seen. Um, and this, this persists right throughout the struggle, this attitude, and it affects the tactics of the suffragists, which we'll talk about in just a second. Um, but what became clear through this first instance of attempting to take a bill and have that voted on in Parliament was that women's right to vote was never going to be handed to women. In the same way that all reforms are fought for, this was obviously going to have to be the case with um, the, the attempt to get female suffrage. And, and what is clear from this beginning point and, and becomes vehemently clear throughout the struggle of the suffragists and the suffragettes is that the change in attitude to have the vote for women didn't come because of a withering away of conservative attitudes. It didn't come because of a, a gradual change of consciousness. Um, it came because of a combination of, of fighting for those reforms, um, of militant tactics and also of, of what was happening around in the world at that time and those material conditions that are changing in combination are what led to the vote and we're going to examine um, those in detail as we go through the talk. Um, so I think it's good to look at some of the arguments that were being put forward in favour of women's suffrage at this time. So still in the 1800s here, quite early on. And it does take over 50 years for women to actually gain uh, the right to vote in Britain. But to begin with, it's um, John Stuart Mill, a famous Liberal MP um, and kind of philosopher, who takes the bill of the women forward. And he's a real ardent... Um, ardently in favour of, of women's suffrage um, and campaigns for it throughout his time being elected to different successive governments. Um, but Mill's um, statement, I think, is really interesting in terms of like, how the argument was being put forward, like which women and why should get the vote early on. Because he says, um, Can it be pretended that women who manage an estate or conduct a business, who pay rates and taxes, often to a large amount and frequently from their own earnings, many of whom are responsible heads of families and some of whom, in the capacity of schoolmistresses, teach much more than the great number of male electors, are not capable of a function of which every male householder is capable? I think... Even here, early on in Mill's speech, you can clearly see class lines being drawn. The argument that he's putting forward isn't that all women deserve the right to vote because they're you know, equally thinking human beings. He's putting it forward and saying, well, look, they pay taxes. They're running businesses the same as the men, so that's the reason that they should have the vote. Um, and I think that, that is kind of characteristic of the movement as a whole as it starts out, despite the fact that um, when we start seeing the suffragettes formed, um, there is a link to the Independent Labour Party. In the Labour Party, there are many uh, working class movements from, from women in particular. Um, but despite those things existing, on the whole, the argument is a very bourgeois argument to begin with. Um, on the other hand, we see some not just liberal MPs in favour of this, but conservative MPs who see um, broadening out the franchise to propertied women over 30 as a, as a positive thing for them. They see, well, you know, those women are, are still of the bourgeoisie, they are still capitalist, their interests align with ours, and therefore they'll vote, shoring up the conservative vote. And what this again highlights for us, I think, is the idea that um, liberation struggles cannot be fought unless they are fought, uh, cannot be fought successfully unless they are fought along class lines. Here we see a clear case of the fight for women's emancipation happening as a con like in, in, in a way that would favour the Conservative Party, favour um, the bourgeois state and maintain and secure its hold on society. And so it's really important, as we'll see throughout this struggle, that connections are made between struggles for the emancipation of the oppressed and the fight against class society itself. Um, and I think 
we've, we've got lots of um, important um, social, female socialists writing on this question at the time, Eleanor Marx, Rosa Luxemburg, and in particular, Clara Zetkin, who really hits the nail on the head when she says, um, they, speaking of the, the conservative and liberal politicians, they are not in favour of women's rights, but of the rights of ladies. They do not fight for the political emancipation of the female sex, but for the advancement of the interests of the middle classes. And this is something that we see right throughout this struggle for women's suffrage, um, in particular with the suffragettes and the emergence of them that will come on to in the early 1900s. Um, but the vote, especially for these kind of politically active, um, politically minded middle class women, becomes a kind of lightning rod um, for those wanting to talk about and discuss how they can change the problems that women and children face in society. And so people, um, these women in particular, really believe that having the right to vote will allow them to A, have their voices represented, but B, be able to make decisions um, that they feel much more informed and able to make. So some of the things that they think the vote will allow them to change is um, the fact that the, the working conditions for women are so dire and disgusting at this time, um, the this, this sort of sexualisation that women face in, in the everyday life, in the workplace, uh, the fact that single mothers are so hard done to in this society, the existence of workhouses, the slum housing, things that disproportionately affected women um, and children over men. And they thought that having the right to vote would um, allow them to change these things and have a say on, on how policy was made. Um, and of course, some, some reforms are made and we'll, we'll kind of study what, what reforms come with the vote. But of course, we still see today that even just having the right to vote doesn't necessarily mean that we have representation or the ability to change those kind of things just because of a particular gender being able to vote in a parliament. Um, so by the end of the 1800s, the suffrage movement starts to sort of broaden out, more people uh, becoming aware of it through meetings that suffragists are holding all around the country. Um, Thank you. And we see a second petition collected, notably larger than the last one. So around the end of the 1800s, they're gaining about 21,000 um, signatures on a petition for female suffrage. Again, each time these bills are attempted to be presented to government. But what's interesting is to contrast at the end of the 1800s, how many um, petitions, how many signatures are on the petitions for women's suffrage compared to in the mid-1800s and the petition for male suffrage, which gained six million, vote, um, six, six million signatures. So even though we're starting to see the suffrage movement picking up pace by the end of the 1800s, as a consequence of some of these material conditions that I've already mentioned, in comparison to um, the kind of political awareness and the development of consciousness that was happening around the desire to broaden out the franchise for uh, <coughs> male suffrage, actually, this is still quite a small number of um, women that are involved in this and again they're still quite restricted at this stage to the middle classes and the more bourgeois women um, and it's not really until um, 1897 that we see the emergence of really concrete organizations emerging around the country and it's at this stage that we start to see the suffrage movement broadening out reaching out to more working-class women um, and bringing them into the organizations and so we see the establishment of the um, National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies and this is a, a kind of federal umbrella organisation that really kind of brings together and organises for the first time lots of small organisations that have been set up around the country, that have been holding meetings, that have been, um, you know, holding public sort of discussions in parks, soapbox speaking, essentially. Um, and they bring these together under a woman called Millicent Garrett Fawcett. And she's a really interesting character because she sort of attempts to change society by trying to tackle the capitalist and bourgeois perspective of women being like over emotional and um, really hysterical. And, and so the aim of the suffragists was to create change by um, 
showing and proving the bourgeoisie wrong, showing these liberal and conservative MPs that women in practice were not hysterical and that could control their emotions. And so their campaigns focus solely around pacifist actions. For example, uh, the, the speaking that I've mentioned, interrupting meetings, organising protests, lobbying MPs, collecting petitions and attempting to have bills read in, in Parliament. Um, but of course, in understanding why this was unsuccessful and why it took more than 50 years for um, any change to occur, we have to understand how consciousness develops. Of course, if it was simply a case of being able to go out and convince everybody that you are correct and sort of showing them by making valid arguments, then we wouldn't have sexism in existence today. We would have won that argument a long, long time ago. But that's not how consciousness changes. It's not simply that you have to convince everyone else who has the wrong mindset of your correct position. Correct ideas have existed for centuries, and yet we haven't uh, seen those implemented. And partly the reason for that is because it's through our material conditions, our lived experiences, the way we relate with one another that determines our mindset and the way that we think. Um, and so this attitude um, of the suffragists was obviously quite limited. In fact, I think um, it's quite ironic because Millicent Garrett Fawcett says of the movement that it's like a glacier, slow moving but unstoppable. Um, and I think the events of history show that to be fast because during uh, the outbreak of war, it was uh, Garrett Fawcett and the suffragists who announced an immediate cessation of any militant tactics. Um, they didn't support the war by any means, but they completely stopped in order to support the British state um, and to kind of show show that, again, they were in favour um, and would have been absolutely reasonable and non-hysterical were they to be given the vote. So you can see how that's um, a problem from the, uh, the suffragist movement. Now, the suffragist movement um, included both men and women, um, but so did the anti-suffrage movement, which really starts to, again, develop in size, and it's very large, includes both men and women, who are completely opposed to the idea of widening out the franchise to women. Um, this is a movement led by a woman called Mrs. Humphrey Ward, who goes by that name because she thought, you know, I am of a property of my husband and I want to show that. So she never ever went by her own actual name. She always referred to herself in relation to her husband in this way. Makes a point about that. Um, but the anti-suffrage movement is really important to understand because it is very large. Um, and so they're kind of based on this idea that, um, you know, the, the, this conservative way of thinking that it's men who uh, are the ones that are rational and can make these decisions. Um, and Humphrey Ward says... Um, constitutional, legal, financial, military and international problems were problems that only men can solve. And in contrast, again, um, to the petitions of the suffragists, the anti-suffrage movement has a petition in the early 1900s that gains 250,000 signatures. Um, and I'm using these statistics just to kind of give a rough idea of the size of these movements in comparison to one another. Um, but that's, a not, that's not an unsizable um, group of people that we're talking about. Um, and in particular, this movement includes many working class women. So working class women who've seen the franchise expanded to men, um, seen it sort of extended to not all working class men, but a few more than they had before, and seeing no changes at all in their material conditions. Yes, some more people have got the vote, but have their working conditions changed? No. Has their living conditions changed? No. And so they can't see, um, there's no material connection between the benefit of having the vote and the change in their working conditions and living conditions. And so this is kind of one of the main reasons why the anti-suffrage movement is as large as it is. Those arguments aren't being made against it. And in reality, the vote isn't um, showing showing how it could make any real changes to people's lives. Um, there's also um, some sort of quite very, very ultra-left socialists who argue against this at the time as well, who say, actually, look, 
on that same basis, we shouldn't argue for votes. What we should be arguing for is industrial organisation and industrial action. And so they kind of um, oppose the vote on those grounds as well, saying that it's kind of meaningless and, and turning away from parliamentary tactics. I'll come back to this a little bit later because this is one of the main uh, views that Sylvia Pankhurst turns to later on in her political career. Um, so it's in 1903 that we see the emergence of the suffragettes, um, and they begin to begin with are aligned with um, key figures of the Labour Party, of the Independent Labour Party, and uh, they have connections and, and um, links to leaders of the labour movement and the working class movement, um, and it's kind of established as a women's only party to begin with. I think there's a bit of um, kind of egotism coming through with Emmeline Pankhurst because she attempts to join the Independent Labour Party in Manchester and they refuse her admission on the grounds of being a woman. And so she, this is kind of like the final straw for her setting up the Suffragette Party, which is obviously, uh, the, uh, you know, kind of trying to be this um, women's army in, in a sense. Um, and they, they want it to kind of be free from party politics. They want it to be free from being used as a pawn for Liberal MPs or for Conservative MPs to use when they go and campaign in elections. Because they've kind of seen this promise time and time again. And when they get to Parliament, of course, there is no accountability. It's always promised for the next Parliament. And so um, they want it to be kind of free from, from those party politics. Um, and it's very sort of authoritarian to begin with. But they break away um, from the NUWSS uh, that I mentioned earlier, this umbrella organisation because they, um, they want it, the organisation um, to be kind of more militant. They want it to be um, sort of separate from any other party politics that might water down their message. Um, and so they begin um, with quite similar tactics to the, the suffragists to begin with, going along to meetings, interrupting, heckling MPs, um, shouting out questions, when, is women get, when are women going to get the vote? They create massive banners and drop them uh, from like the balustrades at meetings and things, all like... Um, quite pacifist, very similar uh, to the suffragists. But they split away from the suffragist movement. And um, Emmeline Pankhurst um, releases a statement when they split away. And I think it's quite interesting to look at. She says, we, don't, we do not believe in the effectiveness of the ordinary suffrage organisation. The WSPU is not hampered by a complexity of rules. We have no constitutional bylaws, nothing to be amended or tinkered with or quarrelled over at a general meeting. In fact, we have no general meeting, no business sessions, no elections of offices. The WSPU is simply a suffrage army in the field. Um, and so in comparison to the suffragist movement that is um, this quite broad organisation that um, has lots of different organisations within it, all with their own internal democracies, including some uh, kind of women's trade unions and working class movements, the suffragette organisation is very authoritarian. There's no room for internal discussion. Uh, there's no way for ordinary members to kind of contribute to the leading line of the suffragettes or the tactics that they take. And this um, authoritarian approach only deepens as the struggle continues and goes forward. Um, but they begin very quickly to um, step up their campaigns. And the suffragettes actually run some really interesting tactics, which they draw from the Irish nationalists. So the kind of um, struggle for um, Irish independence that's going on that runs sort of parallel to um, the suffragette and the suffragist movement is really interesting to look at. So one of the tactics used by the Irish nationalists is uh, going along to by-elections and campaigning against people running without them having home rule as part of their platform. And the suffragists really take, uh, the suffragettes really take this on board. Um, and they have a series of successful by-elections at which they are attending and they're lobbying and they're holding meetings where they, they prevent some conservative MPs and in some cases liberal MPs from 
returning to their seats on the grounds that they were against women's suffrage. Um, and obviously this is a really good tactic for sort of raising awareness, but doesn't put any meaningful pressure on the government. Um, but there's still, um, there's still a, backla a backlash from this. And so I've mentioned that most of this, in fact, all of this at this stage in the early 1900s, all of this action is actually... Um, peaceful, it's all legal, it's all within the law, and yet there is still massive police um, repression against the women who are trying to take these petitions to Parliament. Um, and, and by taking them to Parliament, I le literally mean walking in blocks of 20 to the, um, to the stranger's door in order to physically uh, present their bill to the Parliament to be heard. So it's all very peaceful, but the police um, are beginning to arrest women on a massive scale. Uh, they use very brutal tactics against them, literally beating them with batons, dragging them to the floor, dragging them along by the hair, manhandling them off. Um, and rather than this having a kind of quelling effect on the movement, which I think they um, would have wanted, so to deter women from getting involved, to deter them from being a physical presence at Parliament, it actually further radicalised the women who were going into the most disgusting conditions in prison. They were being treated like ordinary kind of, like, disgusting prisoners basically like they were treated awfully they were um strip searched they were like hosed down with freezing cold water they were denied any basic rights and um, they were forced to be treated not as political prisoners which they should have been legally by the state um and already at this stage we see um the emergence of even even like class lines in the way that the women were treated so on the one hand we see um bourgeois women arrested and given a token sentence of one or two days um, and then released free on a consequence of the police knowing their name. And on the other hand, we see working class women um, arrested and given sentences of weeks, if not months, for the same crime. And this crime, by the way, is just obstructing the police. Like, no window smashing has started at this stage. Um, there isn't really any obstruction of the police except that the police are obstructing the women in their march to Parliament. Um, so it, it's, very, it's very harsh, the repression that we see from the government in this case. And it's kind of put to the test by a woman called Lady Constance Lytton, who um, is aware that this is starting to happen. She's aware that the tactics used by the working class women are being treated differently, and she puts it to the test. She goes to um, a, a demonstration under the name of Jane Wharton, um, and it's this demonstration where she's arrested and given a much longer sentence until they realise who she really is. So she, like, tests this theory out, basically. Um, and so in the first two, um, as, as 19, the early 1900s uh, progressed, we see more and more women arrested until 1907, where in just two months, 130 women are sent to prison um, simply for walking to Parliament, essentially, and carrying a bill under this obstructing police. Um, and we see, um, you know, by this stage, a Liberal government in power and... Um, Asquith really plays a very negative role in terms of promising these votes and consistently failing to even have the idea of votes for women de like, uh, debated in Parliament. And this causes a lot of frustration um, amongst the movement, both for suffragists and for suffragettes, who are, who are, who are sick and tired of campaigning for Liberal MPs or, or lobbying them and having the, the promises rejected and defeated at every turn. Um, and I think... To kind of highlight the frustration and to sort of show the role that Liberal MPs were playing, I'm going to quote from Herbert Gladstone, who was Home Secretary at the time in 1908. Um, and he's speaking kind of about why suffrage hasn't really gotten anywhere, why it hasn't developed. And he says, on the question of women's suffrage, experience shows that predominance of argument done is not enough to win the political day. Men have learned this lesson and know the necessity for demonstrating the greatness of their movements and for establishing that force majeure which... Are 
um, Accutates in Arms, a government for effective work. This is the task before the supporters of this great movement. Of course, it's not to be expected that women can assemble in such masses, but uh, power belongs to masses, and through this power, a government can be influenced into more effective action than a government will likely to undertake under present conditions. Now, what he's talking about here is the power that workers have en masse um, to organise collectively against capitalists, to withhold their labour, um, and to cause real damage um, to to property, essentially, to the to the means of production. He doesn't say that very clearly. Um, and also, you know, his attitude is that women can't do this. Now, when we think about the suffragettes and the, the predominant makeup of them, that's absolutely correct. They aren't uh, workers for the most part. There are many, many working class women in there, but not in the leadership. And so these bourgeois women don't have a role to play um, in social production. And so um, can't play the same role and can't use the same tactics that organised working men had used in the past. Um, so... They kind of, the suffragettes hear this and uh, take it very literally, and so they say, right, okay, you think women can't organise, well, we're going to show you that we can organise. So they plan to have a, a protest in Hyde Park, and they think, right, a good number is 250,000. If we can get 250,000 women there, we'll really show them. In actual fact, um, a little bit biased perhaps, but Emmeline Pankhurst's figures estimate that it was, more than, it was more than double that. I think if we take it on a conservative estimate, it was still a lot more than 250,000. And so they hold this rally, and unsurprisingly, nothing happens. Um, of course, it radicalises lots of women. It shows a kind of um, desire for women's suffrage in society, but it doesn't mean it's any closer to being debated in Parliament. Um, and of course, this is, as I've mentioned, because um, most of these women in this organisation, to begin with, didn't really have a means to put the government under real pressure. Um, so... By 1910, um, these promises by Asquith materialise into sort of bills that are drafted. There's a particular bill called the Conciliation Bill, which is proposed, which is, is essentially a bill to broaden out suffrage again for men to those up from 21 and over. So it's, it's not really aimed at opening out the franchise to women. But Asquith says, well, don't worry, you'll be allowed to put an amendment towards that, an amendment that will, will allow women's suffrage, but still for those over 30 and those who are propertied. Um, and so the suffragettes call a, a complete halt to any tactics, any interrupting of meetings, any protest, anything like that. They promise to stop marching to government and demanding to be heard by um, Asquith. And... Through, you know, they kind of put their trust in the government, and this is the last time we really see them sort of have any false hope um, in the government to make any changes for them, because of course this bill is defeated. It goes through so many amendments that Asquith basically said, well, it's too different from the original bill, so we can't have it, it's absolutely not the same. Um, and it's at this point that I think we see a turning point in the movement for suffrage for women, because um, especially Emmeline Pankhurst and the leaders of the suffragettes see this as a real like final defeat. They've tried every possible legal um, way of engaging the social democracy and persuading them and trying to get their voices heard and at every single turn they're completely defeated and, and um, are, are unable to progress any further. And so this is when we start to see the real kind of terrorist militant tactics if you like starting to be uh, used in, in very very large numbers to be quite honest. Um, and the reason for this, I think, is quite sound from Emmeline Pankhurst, one of the few times that I think she's very uh, correct on this matter, because she announces this change in the suffragettes' um, tactics as, um, well, there's something that governments care for more than human life, and that is the security of property. And so it is through property that we shall strike the enemy. 
And this is really important because that is exactly the right perspective, that the government don't care about the lives of a few women who are uh, stuck in prison. They're not bothered about those people, but they are bothered about protecting property and the means of production. And so this is the um, reason why the suffragettes start attacking buildings. They uh, smash windows, they run a huge arson campaign, they create bombs that are going off all over the country. And we really see um, a very, very large number of these small instances of, of kind of individual terrorism, really, right across um, Britain, including in Ireland. Um, there are suffragettes campaigning in Ireland as well through frustration that they're not included in the Home Rule Bill. They're also not being offered suffrage in Ireland. And so there is, there is um, solidarity and unity acro right across the British Isles. Um, and this, this um, kind of stepping up of militancy leads to a stepping up in response from the government and the police as well. And we see the kind of well-known date um, in 1910 of Black Friday, which is a really uh, awful but very kind of clearly organised incident where women again are marching on Parliament with a, with a bill with so many signatures on, wanting it to be debated by the government again. And they're met by not only severe um, beatings and, and physical attacks by the police, but sexual violence is deliberately used against these women. Um, their breasts are punched repeatedly. They are like dragged and um, molested. And it's not just the police that are involved in this, but ordinary male passers-by are involved. Um, and many, many accounts of the women of this day say that you know it was so well organised that it can't have just come from the police. This must have been a measure that was at least discussed in a back room in the government. This is something that was, um, you know, deliberately designed as a tactic against women because it was women that were involved in these protests and in these movements. Um, and I think it's, it, this is really important in understanding why the suffragettes are using this violence. On the one hand, there's that um, frustration at having exhausted all possible means of trying to persuade the government and using those social democratic tactics that I mentioned earlier, but also the severe police repression against them. Um, further really radicalises women. They're sent to prison um, on a mass scale, they're treated horrendously, and so that radicalisation leads women to really want to do something material and concrete against the government in order to have their voices heard and to get the, the right to vote. Um, however, these policies, these kind of militant policies are still largely very ineffective. It's still only really causing a nuisance, essentially, to individual kind of um, properties of individual MPs or... or like wealthy members of society. It doesn't attack capitalism itself, therefore it doesn't cause a large enough nuisance for there to be a big um, kind of change from the government there. And it's, a, it's as a consequence of this militant tactics as well that we start to see huge splits away from the um, WSPU, from the suffragettes. Um, I mentioned earlier about Emmeline Pankhurst's really quite authoritarian rule. Um, she leaves no room for debate. And many suffragettes feel that um, you know, just this militant tactics on their own are just serving to kind of distance their working class women away from the organisation. Many people question, well, why is smashing that window? Or why is uh, bombing that house? Why is that going to get us the right to vote? And there's not really um, enough, there isn't a very large attempt by the suffragette organisation itself to forge those strong links with the workers' movement or with working women in particular and to have their voices and their ideas and their concerns addressed by the movement. Of course, that um, you know, we should mention that there are many, many other working, working women's movements around this time as well, but they're of nowhere near the scale of the suffragettes and are nowhere near the kind of uh, attention from the police. Okay, um, so then of course we see the outbreak of war in 1914. After uh, years, sort of three or four years of really um, 
kind of concerted militant actions, really stepping up that, um, that militancy. And the, the war breaks out, and along with the suffragists, the suffragettes completely stop all militant actions. They direct their funds to the British government. They rename their paper, the suffragette, to the Britannia. And worst of all, most scandalous of all, the suffragettes play a leading role in the white feather movement of shaming working class men to go and have themselves killed for the imperialist war in Europe. Um, it's scandalous, and of course caused further splits. And this is where Sylvia Pankhurst splits away. Uh, Sylvia Pankhurst is a um, daughter of Emmeline um, and is a socialist from the very beginning, has always argued that the suffragette movement should forge stronger links with the workers' movement, that they would be more united um, together. And so she forms the East London Federation of Suffragettes, which plays a, a, a very militant role still throughout the war. She makes these connections to the workers' movement. She connects and speaks at um, lots of different meetings of male workers as well. And of course, between 1911 and 14, in the run-up to the war, um, thank you, um, in the run-up to the war, we see so many, in pra practically all really key workers um, of the male workers going out on strike. We see the dockers on strike, transport workers, railway workers, engineers, and Sylvia is um, speaking at these meetings, trying to connect these two struggles together on the basis of wanting to fundamentally change society in order to see meaningful reform. So she doesn't see the vote as the, as the panacea in the same way that many of the other suffragettes do. Um, and I think... Because of this um, sort of attitude that Sylvia has, and I mentioned earlier about the frustration in, in Parliament, she kind of um, understandably takes, I think, you know, not understandable in the sense that we would, we would go along with that as well, but understandably becomes quite ultra-left. And she thinks, well, look at the state of Parliament. We've been petitioning and campaigning for years. It has absolutely uh, no interest in, in changing the suffrage and the, the franchise for women. And so she kind of turns away from it and says, we should have nothing to do with it anymore. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be working or trying to convince people inside of Parliament. Like, we need to turn away and we need to complete, be completely revolutionaries, but not revolutionaries that work in Parliament, but revolutionaries that are setting up our own organisations and fighting from the outside. Um, and Lenin really criticises her on this, on this matter, and he says, no, look, you must go to where the majority of these women are still, and, and men as well in the suffrage movement, and where they're at in their consciousness, and develop them from there. And that means a combination of militant tactics, um, organising and um, you know, working with the workers' movement to strengthen those links, um, but also having those discussions around parliament, having those discussions around how they can um, kind of elicit the vote in that way. Um, so um, there's kind of this um, sort of turning point, I suppose, in the way that Sylvia sort of views what will happen next. So the, the war is broken out, and she sees by 1915, well, with all these material conditions that I'm going to talk about in a minute, um, it, it seems inevitable that the vote will kind of uh, come to women after the war, because they're going to broaden out suffrage for men anyway to those of 21 and over. Um, an amendment will have to be put forward on that. And she says, but the, the, the real question, the thing that's important here is whether or not that vote for women will be for the property over 30 or whether we campaign and argue for that to be for all women. And she kind of sees, again, this, one of the main reasons for her turning away from the suffragettes is that she sees them only wanting to go for the sort of minimum demand of just those women, uh, those propertied women over 30. And this is a big problem, as we'll see as we move on. Now, as a consequence of the war, um, many more women are involved um, in, in workplaces, um, 
they're involved in organising for the war, musician, making munitions, and they're involved in, in like kind of like the healthcare and hospital side of it as well. And so there's an argument in society that, well, you know, women did it. This was the way, as the suffragists said, they proved themselves to be rational. They proved themselves to be non-hysterical. Um, but I don't think that's um, a very valid argument. Um, it doesn't. It sort of takes the attitude that women were like rewarded for their their help in the war effort, and they've just shown their kind of um, their tr like commitment to the British state in some other way then they'd have maybe got the vote earlier and that's kind of that is the, the kind of argument that's put forward there and I think actually that's uh, that's a very narrow way of looking at it and it's also not a correct way of looking at it because really there are many many other factors happening that um, ensure that the vote takes place for women at this time and then in 1928 is broadened out to all women and those things need to be looked at um, so first of all um, during the war, there'd been huge pressure um, inside Britain still, but also from the front lines for men who were fighting to have the right to vote. And so um, about, about sort of 1916-17, another conciliation bill is put forward, this time arguing that um, the vote should be broadened out, um, not just for property men, but for um, men who'd been fighting on the front lines in the war, and therefore they, you know, they should deserve the vote. And so we see um, you know, the material conditions change there, and this puts pressure on the government to also have to kind of consider well, you know, why not? Why not broaden it out to women? Are we going to are we going to still maintain that sort of sexist position? Um, but with this, there's a kind of there's also a fear. You know, if we broaden out the franchise to all of these working class men on the front lines, that's going to tip the balance of forces too much. Um, and so there's an idea that keeping uh, that kind of adding women's franchise. Uh, to Britain would level that out because, as I mentioned earlier, we're talking about women who are propertied, who are going to vote in line um, with their own class, not necessarily in a way that's going to benefit all women. And so there was a belief like that conservative attitude returns of saying, well, yeah, let's give, let's give these propertied women the vote whilst we're broadening it out for working class men because that's going to kind of readdress that balance of power um, and keep the conservatives and liberals in the kind of um, balance that they'd had because don't forget there is an emerging Labour Party at uh, this time um, led by uh, Keir Hardy that's, that's starting to grow and develop and there's a, a kind of fear that um, they'll be unseated basically. Secondly, um, women played a really large role in the workplaces, as I mentioned, um, and this meant that they were starting to get organised, really organised in the workplace for the first time. And, and it's through the war um, that trade unionism for women goes up by 160%. Um, and this is... Um, this causes a problem for the government, not just because trade unionised uh, or unionised women is, a, is an immediate threat, but that combined with the global events that are happening, namely with the Russian Revolution, does pose a threat to the uh, British government, who are afraid of something similar to the Russian Revolution happening in, in Britain as well, with organised workers, workers on strike and women becoming organised too. And so we really see a combination of sort of the effect of the war, internal politics, and also global politics impacting upon um, whether or not it, women, women, women are going to be given the right to vote. And I think the impact of the Russian Revolution is huge because it is immediately that the women are given the right to vote in these countries where the revolutions have happened. And it's not just Russia, it's Belarus, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Ukraine, the Crimea. New Zealand had had the vote in the late 1800s and Germany, of course, gets it in, the in 1918. So these events are also putting additional pressure on the government to do something and to make a change. Um, and so they want to keep this air of democracy that they um, are trying to put forward with the social democracies. You know, yes, look, we are going to give you the right to vote. Women have got the right to vote. People will see that as a, like, a, you know, a step forward, at least, even if it isn't for all working class women. 
Um, and finally, there's the, the threat of the suffragettes returning to their militant tactics after the war. They don't want to see the suffragette violences or outrages, as they called them, which I think is very belittling of the, of the tactics itself. But um, they don't want to see a return to that. And so, in a way, we can see um, the granting of the broadening out of the franchise to women as a kind of um, way of quelling the um, very kind of petty bourgeois anarchist nature of the leaders of the suffragettes who, you know, with their attitude of deeds, not words, and um, trying to create a kind of political storm but not really um, doing anything to reach out to the labor movement and galvanize real like pro properly uh, all women the working class women so they have this very kind of um, anarchist petty bourgeois nature and so by giving those women the leadership the vote they're going to quell that and prevent um, any more really militant actions from taking place and starting up again after the war um, and so these are kind of the um, sort of main conditions that lead to the vote being granted in 1918 um, and so we see that broadening out of the vote for men and also um, the inclusion of some women those propertied women over uh, the age of 30. now in reality um, that's very very few women i just want to use some statistics again to kind of highlight who that really meant so women over the age of 30 it would have enfranchised um 793,000 women Women who weren't able to vote, uh, but still over the age of 21, just under um, 2.7 million women. So the actual granting of the franchise didn't really include very many women to begin with. Um, and it was those, the more bourgeois women that were, that were the ones that benefited from this. Um, so the lessons we can learn from this, I think, are really important. I mean, first of all, it highlights the limitations um, of, of the bourgeois democracies and what can be won um, through fighting for reforms. Um, it wasn't um, all women that were given the right to vote at this stage, and that's very limiting. We have to we have to be aware of that. Um, but also, it wasn't the panacea that many women hoped it to be. So, women that were campaigning around the vote as a real <coughs> lightning rod for change. Yes, there were some reforms that came um, shortly after um, the franchise was broadened out. For example, um, there were some improvements in care for pregnant women in maternity, care for women after that. There were um, pensions established for widowed women so that there were fewer women in workhouses as a consequence of men dying. Um, but these are quite small in terms of what really what the change that we really wanted to see. And by no means was the quality achieved just through women having the franchise and that highlights to us again how you know you can have representation in, within capitalism you can have women represented you can have female MPs but they're not necessarily going to change the material conditions and the reality for working women on account of them being of the same um, of the same gender essentially and so even today, despite women having the vote and equality in law, we still see vast inequality between uh, the lives of working women and, and men, essentially. And these things are, you know, we're still fighting for reforms that will kind of improve um, uh, the lives of working women. We're still fighting to eradicate sexism. None of these things have been achieved through the vote. And it, the um, campaign for the vote itself kind of shows you um, and... and developed the consciousness of many, many women who went through that struggle to that understanding. It links back to what I said at the start, really, that reforms, um, even the simple idea of women having the right to vote, not necessarily meaning any kind of change in terms of like money spent on women, nothing fundamentally changed in government. Even this reform had to be fought for hand over hand. They really did fight for this. And the militant tactics and the amount of prison time that women were um, kind of exposed to and put under, under um, is, is vast. And I've not even had a chance to mention the kind of vile tactics that were used against women, for example, the, the torturous effects of force feeding. Um, 
And so, you know, this is a lesson because if we're looking to change society, we can't just continue to fight for reforms in this piecemeal way. Firstly, those reforms um, are things that we will always be fighting for. And secondly, even the smallest things have to be really hard fought for. Um, I think we can also learn that kind of violent tactics um, that, are, that were used by the suffragettes had a negative effect on many working women who saw A, the vote as not being meaningful enough, but B, were turned away by those actions and didn't want to be involved in something like that. And finally, we come to the idea, we return to the idea that liberation struggles cannot be fought um, simply on the grounds of trying to eradicate oppression for um, an oppressed group on their own. Unless that is tied in with the fight against capitalism and the fight against class society, then it's working women or the workers of that movement that are going to be um, left out or not able to see any real meaningful change um, if, they're, if they're not included in that movement. Um, and so I want to just return to a quote by Sylvia Pankhurst to finish um, because I think this really sums up the kind of way forward and what it is that we're actually fighting for. She says um, of herself, I wanted to rouse these women of the submerged masses to be not merely the argument for more fortunate people, but to be fighters on their own account, despising mere platitudes and catch cries, revolting against the hideous conditions about them and demanding for themselves and their families a full share in the benefits of civilization and progress. And this is clearly the fight that still has to be had on our hands. We don't want mere platitudes. We don't want um, a kind of veiled attempt to include us in the social democracies. We want the full um, benefits, we want the full products of civilization and the work that goes on. And I think the only way that that will actually be achieved is by the women's movement and the workers' movement uniting in their fight against capitalism and against class society. And this is the only way forward. Thank you. tuning into IMTV Radio. Subscribe or download the podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or visit www.socialist.net for all the latest news, analysis and Marxist ideas.